Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Um, I didn't feel like making new slides, so I'm just doing part two of last week's sermon. I'm kidding, of course. I'm kidding. I love making slides. I was kind of disappointed I had to use the same ones. So, um, Last week, we began a series on the subject of prayer, and I've tried very hard to approach the series prayerfully, and as a result, unlike when I usually strategize and plan, I'm not really sure how long the series is going to be or how short. Um, I know there's at least three to five more messages in there, but I'm trusting God in prayer to see where he'll take us. And what's interesting is ever since the series started, I've had a number of significant conversations with people in this church about their relationship with prayer, and those conversations have sparked new convictions and new insights about why prayer seems so simple on the surface, but we find it so difficult at times to connect to God through prayer. Last week, what we did was we looked at an occasion where Jesus' disciples were watching him pray, basically eavesdropping, and as soon as he finished, they pulled him aside and said, hey, we don't know what it is, but we've watched a lot of people pray, but when you pray, there's something different about it. It makes us feel like we've been praying all our lives but we don't really know what prayer is yet. You do it in a way that makes us feel like we've been doing it wrong all our lives. So they said to him, coming out of a culture steeped in prayer, Lord, teach us to pray. It was a very interesting request, and in response, Jesus gave them a teaching that we have in history traditionally come to know as the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up Catholic, you you knew it as an Our Father, right? Like, You go through this prayer, which we have memorized. Many of us have recited that prayer probably a thousand times at least over the course of our lives. And in this particular prayer, Jesus was not so much teaching what to say when we pray, but he was opening up a window into understanding how to pray the way he prays. Where is your mind at when you close your eyes and kneel to pray? What what is going on inside of you and in what In what position before God do you believe you are so that when you pray, something true, something real actually happens in that place? So last Sunday, uh, we we considered a couple things. Just to to quick review, Um, we'll come back to that text in a minute. But last Sunday, we, we said that when we pray, in every occasion when we pray, it's important to realize that who we're talking to is our Father in heaven. That every prayer for the person who follows Jesus Christ is a prayer of intimacy. It's not a prayer spoken to the king of our land or to the general of our army. We never, ever pray to God in that distant, cold, disembodied way. Every time we pray, Jesus taught us, we're praying as children adopted in love as they address their Father in heaven. That's very important because God wants us to experience intimacy Whenever we pray, I think we would do well in all of our relationships before we say a single word to anyone we know to pause for a minute and think about who it is that we're talking to. Who are you to me? Think about how sloppy we get speaking with the people closest to us. Isn't that true? A telemarketer calls you like, hello. But someone in your own family calls you like, yeah, what? Do you realize it would be good for all of us to build intimacy in our relationships by just pausing to consider who is it that you are to me before I open my mouth to speak to you? Every time we pray, we're also doing battle with our own hearts because we're asking God to tell us his will, but at the same moment, we come to God with a will of our own. And so one of the great battles that happens in prayer is to say, God, I don't want to just know what you want I want to be able to accept what you want over what I want, and that is not an easy thing. 
And so one of the hallmarks of prayers for those who follow Jesus is that we are constantly looking to surrender our will to, to his will. It's not enough to just say, I want to know what you want. What's most important is not knowing it, but being willing to surrender my will under his will. And, and then finally, the third thing we looked at last week was whenever we pray, why does it say intimacy? See, this is a problem with cutting and pasting. It should say dependence. Dependence. Don't be lazy. Let this be a lesson to you. Type it out. That at the very least, we understand that God is the one who provides what we need. But for people who are middle class or above in one of the wealthiest countries ever to exist on the earth, the idea of going to God for our next meal seems very foreign and far away from us. In fact, our biggest problem in America is not starving to death. It's, it's how to lose weight because we're far from starving to death. And yet there's something for us to learn here in that a lot of us carry a lot of spiritual and emotional baggage around with us everywhere we go. And sometimes it gets to a point where we honestly wonder, am I going to get through another day of this relationship? Am I going to get through another day of life in this jacked up world surrounded by people that I can't trust? Is anyone out there for me? Am I ever going to deal with this pain, these scars, these memories of history I can't erase? And God says, even with those burdens, you are supposed to come first to him every single day and say, God, I won't even make it through this day if you don't give me what I need to make it. I'm not going to find the means to get through this day from any other source than you. And so when we pray, we first acknowledge our need for him to say that we don't have the ability to provide for ourselves everything we need. We as Americans can provide ourselves food and clothing and shelter, but we can't provide freedom of the heart. We can't give ourselves peace. And some of us won't make it very much longer if we don't find those things in our hearts. And so in prayer, God invites us, come and see that you can depend on me. I am dependable, and everything you need to get through this next day, I will provide. And tomorrow you come back, and I will provide yet again. But those who are astute or have memorized the Lord's Prayer will have noticed last week that I skipped a couple parts. You're probably like, um... What about the last two? So I I want to explore the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer with you this morning. And so let's go back quickly and look at those verses. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. There were two versions of this prayer recorded for us. Luke recorded one version and Matthew recorded the other. We're going to look at Matthew's version this morning. And in Matthew 6, 9 through 15, here's what's written. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I debated about including verses 14 and 15 because they're very chilling and not particularly friendly sounding, but that's the word of the Lord himself, and we need to wrestle with and understand what he meant by those words. So I want to observe with you a couple things about this second half of the Lord's Prayer. The first of those is that when we pray, one of God's great desires is to give us the experience of freedom. Freedom. If you are a follower of Jesus, and as you walk this life with him, if your experience is a greater and greater sense of bondage and restriction and confinement and regret... You're not experiencing what he wants for you. The journey of being a follower of Jesus is not a journey of slavery and bondage, 
of things I can't shake or control or rid myself of. It is a journey of freedom. And that's so important for us to understand. What God wants us to experience in knowing Jesus is that we are truly, deeply set free from things that have held us back and confined us and controlled our lives for far too long. So Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us as we have also forgiven others. Now, why am I speaking about freedom when I'm actually talking about forgiveness? Because I'm truly convinced after 21 years at this church that that's the greatest kind of freedom that people yearn for. So much of what has scarred and defined our earthly lives is related to the things we have done wrong, which we regret deeply, and the things others have done to us that we had no control over. I never asked you to do that to me. I was never looking for that kind of experience, and you brought that into my life. And now I can't unknow it. I can't unremember it. It is permanently a part of my life record. How dare you? And we are so defined and scarred by things we were helpless to avoid. And as a result, we go through our lives carrying this heavy rock of burden. And Jesus says that in prayer a great invitation given to us is to lay down that heavy stone and be set free. Set free from the regrets you cannot undo. Things that are burned in history of what you did you should never have done and what others did which they never should have done to us. What's interesting is that as he teaches this, he uses the language of debt. He uses financial accounting language. Are there any accountants in the room? Man, you better remember this sermon if you're an accountant. We're talking your native tongue here. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What's interesting is that the verb form of that word debt, to indebt ourselves, is used 30 times in the New Testament. And 25 out of those 30 times, it's not used in financial terms. It's used as a synonym for sin. That this idea of indebtedness is not really talking about a monetary burden, but a spiritual one. How many of you are carrying any form of debt right now? Mortgage, car loan? Okay, so pretty much everybody. That's what it is to live in a capitalist economy, is that we can't live the lives we're used to without capital, right? Very few, the elite 1% live off of cash, and everybody else has to borrow to buy big things. I can't imagine buying a house in cash. Can you? There are people in the world who do it, but I can't imagine it. So if you're carrying debt, let me just ask you a question. How does your debt make you feel? How many are like, you know, my debt makes me feel alive because at least I know I owe someone something. I matter. I am a name on someone's database, and if I miss them one month, they will remember me and reach out. How many of you are just so happy that your debt makes you real in this world? You see, nobody talks positively about debt. Debt is universally regarded as a negative thing, isn't it? And, and the, the word most of us might use to describe debt are words that fall in the category of burden and weight. How many of you fantasize about hitting the lottery and the first thing you really want to do is not buy a yacht. You want to pay off all your debts so that you are beholden to no one. Wouldn't that be a fantasy? Isn't that what you daydream about late at night when you're like, wouldn't it be awesome? This idea of debt is very clever as a device for sin because the truth is that that sin and the guilt that follows feels very much in the heart like debt. It's something I owe because of something I chose or if you inherited a student loan, because something somebody else chose. But I have an obligation to it now, and there's no climbing out easily. I can't just wiggle my nose and blink it away. It's going to be there, and they're going to extract every last bit of it from me. And I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Every sin you commit, okay, every sin you commit... It's like a weight of debt that you owe to God. 
When we talk about sin, most commonly we think of the wrongful acts we knowingly commit. But here's a new realm of sin I've been really thinking about in my own life. They're the righteous acts which I knowingly omit. They're the things that I know I feel I need to do. I walk past someone that I know I should reconcile with, and I think, I don't need that drama in my life today. Maybe next week, but I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to open that can of worms this morning. It's a nice day. Why ruin it? It's an apology I should make. It's that helpless person I should be inconvenienced to assist. But honestly, I'm late to an appointment. And I actually have a life, and i got to get to it. There are these righteous things I know to do, which I suppress because it doesn't fit into my world today. And I think that's also part of the, the weight that I carry around with me, and that's part of the weight you carry around. It's not just the bad things done to you, the bad things not done against you, but it's also the right things which you didn't do and the righteous things others fail to do in your life. How does that make us debtors to God? Well, let me put it this way. If you smoked your lungs into oblivion, and you were wheezing and about to die, and I said, look, I can't let you go out like that. I'm an active person, but I'm going to give you one of my lungs so that both of us could at least keep breathing a little bit. Now, that's not an easy decision because I love breathing hard. I love all the things that make me breathe hard. I want to exercise. I want to do all. I love adrenaline rushes. By giving up a lung, I'm giving up a lot. But if I did that for you, and the transplant surgery was a great success, and you were breathing again, and we were standing on top of a mountain just looking out, and, and then you said, hey, you got a light? I'd look at you a little bit. I'm like, <clears throat> I gave up a lung so you could keep breathing. That's forever burned in our history. From that day forward, every cigarette you smoke is a debt against me. It's owed to me. I don't think anyone who knew you both would look at that person smoking as morally neutral or ambiguous. This idea that the reason you can stand upright in front of a holy God is that that same God paid an incredible price to expunge your record. It was not a cheap thing for him to declare you righteous. And after he did that, each sin that we commit, it stands as an affront between us, a barrier to our connection to God. It gets in the way of the relationship at some level and has to be dealt with. That's the way sin and the resulting guilt makes us in front of God. It's like a burden that's heavy, and it's so heavy sometimes Let's be honest, your guilt and that weight of debt you owe to God because of your sin and the sins of others, that weight will do one of two things. It will either drive you in desperation to God, or it will drive you far away from God in shame and hopelessness. Isn't that true? Some of us, the reason we turn to God is because the weight is too heavy and I can't bear it. i got to do something. I need to be freed of this. i got to just be cleansed and move on with my life. God, help me. I don't want to carry this around anymore. And the weight of that guilt drives us to God. But for many others, that guilt makes us feel like there's no way I'm ever going to be free of this. Think about what I've done. Who could possibly release me from that? You don't know. You think that I did one thing, but if you knew the truth, you couldn't even talk to me. I've done things so horrible. And that's how we feel. And because of that shame and the honest secret knowledge we carry about our own darkness, some of us will be driven away from God thinking even God could not release me from this. Everybody carries that weight of sin and guilt But whether it drives us to God or away from God depends entirely on what we think God is like, doesn't it? Let me say that again. And look up here for a second. Look up here. Every one of us is carrying a weight like that around. And for some of us, it will take us towards God. For others, it will push us away from God. And the difference between those two responses is what you think God is like. 
before Jesus was crucified on the last night, before that horrific day would unfold, he had supper with his friends in a private room. That's the way to go out. I mean, if you know you're going out, get a private room and have dinner with your friends. Right? And as they're eating, or at least they're getting ready to eat, Jesus surprises all of them by kneeling before each one in turn and tenderly washing the dirt off their feet like a common servant. Now, I imagine Peter took the first seat in the room, and so he was the last one to get his feet washed. And as he sees Jesus approaching, he's like, "Uh uh-uh, get up off the floor. You will never wash my feet. Do you remember this incident? And Jesus says to him, Peter, there you go again. The only time you open your mouth is to change feet. Look, if I don't wash you, you and I can't have a relationship. This is necessary. In order for you to have a part with me, you have to receive this cleansing. You can't just come to me filthy and trekking all this in and say, oh, never mind the smoking that I'm doing. Thanks for that lung, by the way. I'm going to destroy this one as fast as I can. You can't just do that and think that's not going to affect us. If I don't wash you, we can't coexist in harmony and peace the way we're meant to. This matters, Peter. And so what does Peter do? Of course, he goes, oh, okay then. Forget my feet. Give me a whole bath. Wash everything. I'm sure he even is pulling his shirt out of his... You know what I'm saying? Like Peter just... Oh, fine. Then wash everything. And listen to what Jesus says in response. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. The whole body is clean. So here's what Jesus meant. When you become one of his, when you trust the work of salvation he offers on the cross, you are once and forever declared righteous and clean before God. At a legal standing viewpoint, you are forever, permanently, the owner of a cleared record. You are clean in the most foundational sense, and that can never be taken from you. It is your gift for eternity from your Savior. But even after the day of our salvation, all of us continue to fall into sin one way or another. Isn't that true? Is there anyone in this room after you became a Christian who just stopped sinning? You're like, oh, I'm glad that's over. Oh, I was so tired of sinning. It's been awesome. 25 years, I got my chip. 25 years sin-free. We don't do that because it's impossible. Even after becoming a Christian, you will sin. You will hate your brother in your heart. You will commit adultery in your heart with somebody. You will lie. You will cheat. You will envy. We We are always sinning, and so we're also in need of a regular cleansing. But here's what God says. The intent of this teaching in that final supper is to say, you don't have to panic that you need a whole bath all over again. You're okay with me at the most important level. But the daily dirt you pick up on your feet, you can't just leave that be. We need to take care of it. And so come to me again and again, and each time you do it, I will wash your feet again. Here's another way of looking at it. Before we were saved When we stood before God, we stood before him as judge. It was his authority, his right, to pass a sentence on you and on me. And there was fear involved with confessing. There's always fear confessing before a judge. If you were under oath standing before a judge and they said to you, Mr. Lee, did you in fact take that package out of the store? I know that I'm bound to to tell the truth, and the answer is yes. But if I say yes, I will go to jail. Think about the tension in a moment like that, when you're standing before a judge who has power over you, and you're forced to tell the truth. How scary is it to be honest and under oath before a judge? But here's the glorious thing. Jesus taught in that upper room that for those who belong to God through Jesus Christ... You will never again confess your wrongdoing before God as a judge, but always from that day forward as a father. Do you understand how important a piece of theology this is? If you're falling asleep, you will waste years. If you miss this right now, you will waste years of your life feeling bad about nothing. Running from God for no good reason. 
So don't fall asleep now. Don't be foolish and fall asleep at the important parts. Slap your neighbor and wake him up. Pinch him somewhere, personal if you have to. This is so important. If you are in Christ, you will never stand before God in confession as though he were a judge handing out a sentence. That is all done for you. Every sentence you should ever have was laid on Jesus. The punitive aspect of your sin has been taken care of once and for all. Your record is clean. So now when you're tracking dirt into your house, it's not about going to jail. It's about a father saying to his child, man, you did it again. You got to learn not to do that, son. Whenever we confess our sins as Christ followers, we confess to a father whose agenda is not to condemn and to punish, but to correct and to shape us more and more into his own likeness. So that even as we confess our sins, he's saying, I know what you did. You got to do better because I want you to become more like me. I want to be able to live in peace and harmony in this family with you. I don't want anything to stand between you and me. I've asked you a thousand times not to track mud into the house. You did it a thousand and one times. What am I going to do? You're my kid. I hope none of you, when your child does it for the hundred and first time, actually put them in shackles and then nail boards over the fireplace and trap them in home prison. That would be horrible, wouldn't it? Starve them for like a month. Do you poke them with thumbtacks? I mean... You don't do any of that, I hope. If you are, you're going to jail. When a father or mother disciplines their child, it is never primarily to punish. It is always to correct and to shape. A father disciplines a child very differently than a judge disciplines a criminal. And for the rest of our days, because of Jesus, our days of standing before a judge are finished. Never again will you fear a court of law because the great advocate has spoken in your defense. If you don't really take that to heart, you will waste years of your life carrying things around which someone else already promised to take from you. Whenever we confess as Christians, we confess as beloved children to our Father. In fact, look at what Nehemiah says hundreds of years. In fact, 300 years before even Jesus walked the earth. You are a forgiving God. Gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in love. Can I just say a word to parents at this moment? Wouldn't it be glorious to be able to hear those words from your children? You are a forgiving mommy. Gracious and compassionate. Dad, you are so slow to anger and you are abounding in love. Do you know the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 2.4, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The reason some of us have a really hard time repenting and confessing of our sins is that we were taught by other authority figures in our lives, that there is no safety to be found in confessing your sins. That every time you admit wrongdoing, the next consequence is a world of fury and hurt coming down on your head every single time without exception. I just want to say a word to the parents, and in fact, everybody else, you can translate this to all of your relationships. If you want to help the people you care about learn how to confess and repent and honestly own the things they do, you have to model the father heart of God. You have to. You may be frustrated. You may be disappointed that you have to correct yet again for the same offense. But if you don't model the father heart of God, your children will never learn that it's safe to confess. They'll never learn how to be free through repentance because they understand that repentance is your ticket to hell. So we have to be mindful of the way that we feel coming to God. And we say whenever we come to God, I know I did it again. I'm almost embarrassed to be in this place again. And yet, God, I don't want to live that life outside of your camp. I don't want to live that other life 
far, far from you. You're the only good thing in my life. And so I come one more time. And the reason I can do that is because I know that this God of mine is a forgiving God. He's gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And because he's like that, I'm like this. I repent because my Father in heaven is slow to anger and abounding in love. I repent because he is gracious and compassionate and so ready to forgive. Parents, I want to encourage you, if that is not what you model for your children, they will hide everything from you and from God for the rest of their lives. They will learn that there is no safety in being honest. We have such a privilege to teach one another through the way we behave that it's safe to be truthful. It's safe to confess. Because in the community of faith, we model the Father heart of God. And if you apologize to me, you will receive forgiveness from my heart. And if I apologize to you, I have faith that I'm going to receive the same from you. Because our, our Father in heaven treated us this, this way. How else can we possibly live? What's interesting is that there's no occurrence in the Bible of forgiveness being given out without confession being made. There's not one single instance in which forgiveness was just given free and clear without repentance because you cannot wash the foot that is not presented to you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot walk around with dirty feet and hope that Jesus will slide tackle you and bind you in ropes and wash your feet against your will. It won't happen. In order for us to access this wonderful freedom of forgiveness, we must be willing to confess our sins. Can you just say amen so I know you're with me? Thank you. In order to tap into this incredible freedom-generating forgiveness, we have to be willing to confess. And if you study what that word means in the Bible, it basically means to agree with. When we confess, what we're doing is agreeing with the person levying the charge against us. So it's like me saying to my son, "Um, I know you said you shared, but you only gave your worst candy to your friend, didn't you? No, I offered him like a whole bag. Yeah, a whole bag of the salted black licorice you hate, which your weird uncle brought you from Scandinavia. That's what you gave him. But I gave him the whole bag. And if I say to my son, Yeah, but you know you weren't really being generous. You were actually unloading your garbage. For him to confess is to say at that moment, you right. You right. I did it. You're right. How'd you know my heart? In physical form, it looked like I was being so nice. But you knew my heart. And the truth is, I'm not going to lie. I was amazed he took it. (laughs) I've been meaning to unload that garbage for years. And I got credit for doing it. How awesome is that? Win-win, right? Then you caught me. And you know my heart, Dad. For them to confess is to agree with, this, with, with the proclamation, you know what you did. Now, why don't we do that? If we realize what kind of God we have, we would stop explaining, justifying, denying, defending our sin. We would stop pretending it wasn't there. We would simply say, you know what, Lord? In this quiet moment, as I pray and think about my life and my deeds, I see what I did, and I hear you telling me that you saw what I did. I'm going to stop fighting you. I'm going to confess. In other words, I'm going to agree with you. You're right, God. That's really the spirit of confession. You know me better than anyone. You're laying it out right there, so plain to see. And I could create a second narrative that makes me look better, but I know it would be a lie. So I just acknowledge it. I agree with you. You're right, Lord. I did that. That's what I had in my heart. And I'm sorry. And every time we do that, Jesus promises us that his mercy towards us is inexhaustible. Now here's how we know that that transaction actually happened. I can confess and say that I received forgiveness, but Jesus says, here's the real proof that you've been forgiven. The real proof you've been forgiven is that with that forgiveness comes a growing capacity to forgive others. 
You know you were set free because you now have the keys to the cell and you set others free. Here's how this works. If your repentance was genuine, it's because you recognize the full enormity of your own sin and you realize that God was willing to forgive even this. Your great darkness was consumed by his great light and you're grateful. You have no pretenses about how bad a person you can be and how great a God saved you. And when you see that, you can never, ever again. I mean, if you got my lungs so you could keep breathing and someone said, hey, could you donate a quart of blood, a pint of blood even, just anything. I, I'm, I'm sick. I need a little blood. Wouldn't you give it away? And if you got my lung and incapacitated my lifestyle just to keep living and someone just wanted a little blood that you could replenish with a glass of orange juice and you refused to give it, couldn't we argue that you don't really understand what was done for you? That that great gift of a lung was wasted on you because you don't understand what you received. Jesus is not saying that in order to be forgiven, you've got to pay for your forgiveness by forgiving others. That's not at all what he's saying. He's not saying, oh, you didn't forgive him, so forget it. I'm not going to forgive you. What he's saying is you can't actually receive God's forgiveness without genuine humility and repentance. It's not just words. It's looking in the mirror and realizing I am a wrong person. I am in need of forgiveness. I can't defend myself anymore. And if you don't see yourself that way, that, that will clearly demonstrate you see other people very wrongly too. Jesus makes this tremendous connection between our being forgiven and our ability to forgive others. And that's so important to understand. I just read a news story this morning about a man named Johnny Small who at age of 15 was picked up by the police. He had no idea what was going on. He assumed he was in violation of curfew. They arrested him for the murder of a woman he had never met and simply solely on the testimony of his co-defendant, another guy accused of the same crime, that guy pled for a deal, threw his friend under the bus, and at age 15 he was in prison for a murder he never committed. And there are many people now working hard to exonerate him. He's in his 40s, having spent the better part of his life stuck in a cell being punished for something he knows in his heart he didn't do. It's likely that he's going to be set free. In fact, last year, 149 such people were exonerated for crimes they didn't commit after languishing in prisons for years, knowing their innocence. But I was just thinking about Johnny Small. I don't know the full details of the story. If there's justice to be done... To be had, I hope he has his day in court and he gets out. But even if he gets out, he remains in bars unless he's able to let go of the 30 years of offense he endured at the hands of another. In fact, it was the person who testified against him telling the truth after years of a guilty conscience that's going to eventually lead to his likely release. Do you understand that Mr. Small will not be truly free just because he walks out of prison? He will only be free when he releases this man from the heavy guilt of what he did. Robbing another human being of their life. I don't have much time, so I'm going to give you one last quick thing here. And it's related to what we just read. He says, don't just seek freedom in prayer. But also understand this, you're going to need protection. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians 6.12, he very, very powerfully illustrates what the spiritual realm looks like. And what he shows us is that the spiritual realm looks very different from the world you and I live in. It doesn't look so different from the world many people live in right now. But the world you and I live in, it doesn't look a lot like the spiritual realm actually looks. He says, what's happening here? Oh, my Lord. What happened to my slides? Okay. There's supposed to be one more slide. He says in Ephesians 6.12, just here, listen to these words. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Here's what he's saying. You may think your struggle is with your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend. That if they would just get their hearts in the right place, your life would suck a lot less. You may think your struggle is with your boss or the economy or that officer writing you a violation, a ticket at your window. And all those things are part of the struggle. But what Paul is saying is our real struggle is not in those things we can see with our eyeballs. That the real struggle that grips our lives is being fought in a realm we can't always see. But in the place of prayer, we can begin connecting this real world to that supernatural battlefield. There are threats all around us. That's what he's saying. Spiritual warfare is affecting you even when you don't realize it. You think that someone you care about just has a bad attitude. Why can't my son just change his heart? Why does he always have this attitude? I tell him to go outside, run. You're young. Just run through the grass like a kid. Breathe some air. Use your muscles. And they never will. And you're like, why can't I get my kid to... And you're just pounding your head against the wall thinking that somehow the problem is you need a better life coach to get your kid to be active. No, that's not all there is. There are things happening in the heart that you can't possibly know about by looking with your eyeballs. There are things happening in the soul. Tortured things. Bloody things. Really painful things that have people in their grips. And if we don't learn to fight in that place, we will lose again and again and again. And we'll be dizzy from confusion, wondering why am I doing all the right things and still getting all the wrong results. And what Jesus is teaching us to pray is this battle is real. So you've got to ask the Lord a couple things. One, don't let me fall into a trap. And by that word temptation, that's a really terrible translation of that Greek word. A, A better translation is, Don't let me fall into a trial that will tempt me to abandon you. Don't let me fall into a situation so difficult that I'm tempted to abandon my faith and my relationship with you because life got too hard. And if I find myself in the clutches of the evil one, you have to come and rescue me. I can't stand up to him by myself. Here's here's the thing. In light of the visible threats all around us, the jerk bully at school, the alcoholic father, the boss who's got it out for you, in light of all these visible threats to our well-being, doesn't prayer just feel like a really weak and passive thing to do? When you're in real pain, your life is falling apart and you cry out to someone at the Church of St. Arbucks, Starbucks, right? You, you go out there and say, look, I got to meet with you. I got to tell you. And you lay out the whole thing. And here's what they say to you. Man, that's rough. Can I pray for you? Isn't there, let's just be honest, okay? In that moment, isn't there just a little voice in your head that goes, that's what you got? I'm losing my life here. I might be unmarried next week. I might be homeless in a month. And what you have for me is, can I pray for you? Doesn't it at that moment sometimes just feel so powerless and passive and weak a thing to do in the light of such great and visible threats? Here's what I picture. It's like war is changing today, isn't it? It's nothing like it was even 50 years ago. And I picture a special forces commander He's armed to the teeth. He's got every gun, every tech gear. And yet there's a cyber attack coming. And he has nothing in his arsenal to fight that. He's like, let's just blow something up. Let's kill somebody. It's not that kind of war right now. They're threatening our network. And in comes a skinny nerd with a backpack and a laptop. He goes, don't worry, I got this. And he opens the laptop. He's like, clickety-clack, clickety And I'm picturing that commander just going, oh, my gosh, that looks so wussy. I can't believe... 
that me, with 80 guns and all this training, I could kill you with my left pinky. And I got to watch you clickety-clack to defend us right now. It just seems like such a pathetic thing to do. And yet, in this kind of war, that hacker is the most powerful warrior you have. You don't need the guy with steroid muscles and 80 guns to fight a cyber attack. You need a guy who understands how to code, who understands networks, who's seen this attack before. That's who you need. And it doesn't matter what his body looks like. It only matters that his brain and his fingers work. And there you have good internet. Do you understand what a sea change is happening in warfare today? And the old guard can't understand it. And it's the same way in the spiritual realm. We're so used to fighting everything out here that it doesn't occur to us that the greatest battles are really being fought in a place that looks so pathetic and weak and passive, but where the real battle will ultimately be won or lost. It's not out here. It's in that quiet place of prayer in which, in this supernatural battle raging around us, we bring God to the fight. We stop fighting with things that can't win this kind of war. And we begin fighting, like the old Petra song from the 80s. You guys remember that? Get on your knees and fight like a man. What a song. They just don't sing them like that anymore. Totally sexist song, okay? I'll grant you that. Get on your knees and fight like a woman giving birth. That's probably more accurate. But you understand what I'm saying. That we are strongest when we're fighting on our knees in prayer. Because at that moment, real power enters the fight. Can you picture that hacker walking to a room full of pacing special forces soldiers, checking their guns? He goes, oh gosh, move, move, move. Clear the table. And the minute he opens his laptop, things begin to happen. That's what prayer is about. That's what prayer is about. It's the first moment in which real hope of victory dawns on the horizon. It's the first moment in which an adversary who is not scared of you, and can I just tell you, when Satan and you are alone in a room, (laughs) only one of you is going to be shaken. He's not scared of you. He's definitely not scared of me. You might be like, hey, you're a pastor, do something. I'll I'll be peeing my pants in the corner right next to you. If it's just us and Satan and God isn't in the room, we're all wetting ourselves. That's just the honest truth. He fears the Christ in us. He fears the God who rises up around us. He is not scared of us at all. This cavalier attitude, bring it on, Satan, I'll kick your butt. I'm a follower of Jesus. Be careful with that. Don't be so brash, so boastful about the power you think is in you. There is very little power in you. There's all power in Christ. And when we pray, we get out of his way, and finally someone the enemy fears has come to the battlefield. Jesus walked the same earth we walk. Granted, 2,000 years ago, but he breathed this air, he endured this human experience. But he did it all the while seeing things we could not see. Do you understand that? He lived the same life you and I lived. Hebrews 4 tells us that. 4.15 says we have a high priest who is not unacquainted with our trials. He was tempted in every way as we were, but did not sin. Our Jesus walked this earth and experienced every facet of human life. And what he saw were things we need to see. He saw things we couldn't see right away, and he was teaching us in this prayer, don't you understand that the things that imprison you, the things that defeat you, are not happening in the visible realm. They're not happening because someone has it out for you. They're not happening because you're in conflict. They're happening because in the invisible supernatural realm, you are at war. And unless we fight the way God taught us to fight, the enemy will have his day. But Jesus says, take heart. You don't have to be powerless ever again. In the things that grip you and you cannot control, 
the appetites and the attitudes you can no longer control. The hopelessness that's, that's just growing in your heart and you can't push it down anymore. The love that's leaking out of you. The memories you can't shake. Sometimes you scare yourself with the darkness of your thoughts and your intentions. You think, am I really this person? That's spiritual battle. And Jesus says, you don't ever have to be powerless again. In the very things you haven't been able to fix, get on your knees and fight. And in that place, real power will come into the picture. What he says is, stop trying to be strong and brave and just hide behind me. Cry out to me. I am so willing to fight for you. Get on your knees and fight. And you pray like this. Really help me, Lord, to confess. And then set me free. Forgive me so that I can be set free and forgive others. In these battles that are destroying my life, Fight for me. Deliver me. So why don't we just pray like that right now? As the praise team starts to come up, let's just pray that right now. I want us to pray very specifically this morning. Those of you who have been feeling very unforgivable. You've carried around this thing you've done, which you don't believe God can free you from. If you only knew. Would you take a risk and confess it honestly to God and say, take this from me. There's nothing he can't forgive if it is confessed. For those of you who have been carrying around unforgiveness. You know, you can become not so unlike Mr. Johnny Small, finding that the best years of your life were wasted in unforgiveness. Making you a darker, angrier, bitter person. Someone others find it hard to be around. And the best years of your life are spent in bondage to something that can be let go. It doesn't erase the past. It doesn't make wrongs right but it sets you free. And if you need to be free, you pray, God, help me to forgive. If your life is going to hell in a handbasket, if it's falling apart right now, and you can't understand why, and there seems to be so little power, so little control, cry out to Jesus. He's ready to fight for you. Cry out to him. Bring a truly powerful ally into the fight. Cry out to him right now. Stop being angry and start fighting. Pray. Let's just take a couple minutes and let's do this spiritual work of prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.